from the Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association. Welcome to Volume 40, Number 42 of Grapevine. This is online version number 30, recorded on the 16th of October 2020. In this week's news, four local entertainment venues get large donations from the Government's Entertainment Recovery Fund. A local nurse gets an MBE in the Queen's Birthday Honours. And a new home wanted for four cats and the cafe they live in. Hi, I'm Graham, your presenter, and joining me from home is this week's newsreader, Desney, plus two contributions from Andy and Desney herself looking at the media and also bringing us a piece by Keith Skipper. As usual, though, we start with some news. Hello everybody, this is Desney. My turn again to bring you the news. Well, it's getting more and more autumnal as the days go by and very soon we'll be changing the clocks and we'll have darker evenings. So that lovely summer has finally gone and we're no better off. So let's start with the news. 3.2 million lifeline boost for the arts in Norfolk and Waveney. Theatres Music venues, museums and an iconic circus are celebrating after receiving a vital funding boost. A total of 22 arts organisations in Norfolk and Waveney are set to benefit from a share of £3.2 million in funding at a critical time for the industry. Nationally, 1,385 theatres, galleries performance groups, arts organisations and cultural venues are benefiting from a share of £257 million from the government's £1.57 billion culture recovery fund. The major investment will help much-loved arts organisations face the challenges of the coronavirus pandemic and ensure they have a sustainable future as they create work, restart performances and plan for reopening. Among the beneficiaries are the Hippodrome in Great Yarmouth, Britain's only surviving circus building that was built in 1903, which has received £182,907. St George's Theatre in Great Yarmouth has been awarded £94,130 and Steve Scott, Chair of Trustees at St George's, said it is an absolute lifesaver. Mr Scott said, we faced the distinct possibility of having to mothball the theatre in the new year, which would have been an absolute tragedy after all the hard work that went into reviving its fortunes at the start of 2020, which promised to be a really successful year for the theatre. Set in a beautiful Grade 1 listed former chapel, St George's Theatre does not have fixed seating and can operate safely with cabaret-style tables and chairs and smaller audiences, enabling us to provide effective social distancing. We have an excellent programme of music, comedy, films and drama for the autumn and winter, including Rapunzel, the lockdown pantomime from December the 15th to the 19th. St George's is at the cultural heart of Great Yarmouth 
and serves the whole community. This grant has put a huge smile on our faces and I know that our audiences will be just as happy knowing that we can continue planning for an exciting 2021. Similar sentiments were shared by Alex Youngs, trustee of the Pavilion Theatre on Pier Gardens Galston, which was awarded £71,700. Mr Youngs said, It's fantastic to have received support from the Culture Recovery Fund at what is such a critical time for our industry and for all entertainment venues across our borough. The Pavilion in particular is an extremely good example of how this fund is vital to enabling independent venues such as ours to survive. We receive no other grants or funding and instead rely entirely on bums on seats to keep the doors open. So the last six months or so have been particularly difficult for us having been fully closed since lockdown. This grant, however, has taken away some of that pressure and will enable us to continue paying the bills whilst we focus on getting ready to reopen, starting with a brand new COVID secure Christmas show this November before welcoming our audience back in 2021 with our rescheduled programme of events. Great Yarmouth MP Brandon Lewis welcomed the government's cultural lifeline for the borough. With almost £500,000 going to four Great Yarmouth cultural institutions. Mr Lewis said, Covid-19 has affected almost everyone and every business in Great Yarmouth. But it is indisputable that the theatre and cultural sector have been particularly badly affected. This welcome cash injection of nearly £500,000 will help ensure that the Hippodrome, Ocean Rooms, Pavilion and St George's Theatres are able to endure this difficult time and come back stronger than ever. These institutions are part of the fabric of Great Yarmouth so I am delighted once again this Conservative Government is taking steps to support our community. A nurse through and through. Great Yarmouth woman is made an MBE in the Queen's Honours List. A nurse who delayed her retirement to help fight the coronavirus pandemic has been honoured on the Queen's birthday list. Julia Hunt, 58, from Great Yarmouth, former Director of Nursing at the James Paget Hospital, has been made an MBE for her services to the profession. It's incredibly humbling, she said, because you go into your career of nursing over 30 years being very patient-focused. It's a public-facing service and you never dream you'll get recognised. She had retired at the end of March, but a little over 24 hours later agreed to return to work in a new role as Director of Infection Control to help the hospital in its fight against COVID-19 and support staff through what she described as times of high anxiety. It was one of the biggest challenges of my career, along with all the other members of the private sector and the NHS, she said. Miss Hunt began her training in 1988 as an enrolled nurse undertaking a conversion course to registered nurse in 1992. 
having worked at the James Paget Hospital in Galston for her whole nursing career across a range of roles, she earned a reputation for maintaining professional standards and a passion for doing the right thing for patients and improving quality of care. She led the organisation to a good CQC rating on three consecutive inspections and was instrumental in pioneering new approaches to support the most vulnerable patients, engaging board support, for example, transforming environments to meet the needs of patients with dementia. Ms Hunt has championed the introduction of nursing degree scholarships to support local individuals to undertake nurse training and more recently has supported the extension of scholarships to modern midwifery students. She also supported the development of staff recognition awards across the Trust as part of her role in improving staff health and well-being. Ms Hunt retired at the end of June and didn't work again until September when she got a new job working part-time at a care home. We've had people in tears. Pet shop owner is bowing out after 42 years. Shopping online may be quick and easy, but there is the postage and you do not get to have a chat with your favourite shopkeeper who knows exactly what you want and often has it bagged up ready for you when you come in. For 42 years, Jeanette Fitzgerald has been meeting the needs of small animals and their owners across Great Yarmouth. But now, the face behind Janie's pets in Deanside and that of her twin sister Anne Sherwood is bowing out and hoping to hand the business on. Putting a sign in the window announcing her retirement had brought people to her door in floods of tears. The 61-year-old said, and seen a stream of cards and flowers delivered. It has been wonderful, she said, really lovely. Mrs Fitzgerald started the shop with her first husband in 1978, running it on her own, albeit with family help, for the last 25 years. At first, they sold a range of pets, from budges to tortoises, hamsters, puppies and kittens, always being wary of who was taking them home and sometimes declaring a pet sold if they didn't like the look of a buyer. Around two years ago, they stopped doing live animals altogether, mainly because of the hours it took to take care of them. But trade is still buoyant. There's still a good little business here, she said. It's time for someone younger to come in and open it up every day. I'm not in any rush, but I would like to see it continue as a pet shop. During lockdown, although they were allowed to open, the shop was closed while the family dealt with the devastating death of their older sister Valerie, also a familiar face in the shop. However, Mrs Fitzgerald did deliver to her older customers who were worried about Covid and the welfare of their pets. She said while old-fashioned personal service was at the heart of the shop's success, it was possibly its future too. Small independent shops were the backbone of retail, she added, making connections and friends with customers, helping to make it a happier experience for everyone. The shop is open on Monday, Wednesdays and Fridays from 10pm to 12pm.
from pets to pubs. The pub landlords working together to try and save the high street. As coronavirus restrictions continue to make life difficult for pubs and bars, landlords along one coastal high street are pulling together to make the best of a bad situation. Pegatis Bar, Theatre Tavern and Bar 37, all along or near King Street in Great Yarmouth, were supposed to open for the first time under new management back in March. For Ruben Cruz and his business partner Marwan Aburaban, who took over Bar 37 next door to the Yankee Traveller in November last year, having to rearrange contracts after lockdown postponed their opening was a heavy blow. Mr Cruz said, We'd been working on a contract with Green King, which fell apart when lockdown was announced. Then we had to start from the beginning again. We didn't end up opening until August because of the delay, and now with the rule of six and 10pm curfew, it's proving tricky to attract customers. Because Theatre Tavern and Pegatis are in the same boat as us, we've decided to work together to share custom and encourage customers to visit each other's venues. We often get people come here for cocktails who've eaten at Pegatis first. We're trying to stop everyone flocking to Marine Parade by making King Street a place for younger people. There needs to be a reason for people to come here because everything else is closing down. For Gary Hamer, who was due to open the Theatre Tavern with his wife Sarah just before lockdown, pubs in the area have to stick together. He said, not everyone wants to be a part of this, but for those of us who do, it's working well. We're sharing stock if anyone runs out and sending people along the road if our pub is full. Gail Taylor, who runs Pegatis Bar, said the goal was to bring back a 90s vibe to King Street. She said King Street is really picking up and is getting back to that relaxed and inclusive vibe it used to have in the 90s. But for Mr Cruz, any new announcement could still throw a spanner in the works. If the hospitality sector gets an even stricter curfew, I'd rather we closed completely. Even with us all working together, it still won't be enough to offset the damage caused by further restrictions. Thanks, Desney. More news shortly. But before that, Andy's first piece this week. Hello, this is Andy with another of the Weird Norfolk Tales. And this one concerns Kitty Witch's Row in Great Yarmouth. Most of us are aware that a witch's familiar is often a cat. But less of us know the story behind Great Yarmouth's Kitty Witches. Until the 19th century, building in Yarmouth was only allowed within the town's medieval walls, which meant that buildings were closely packed into a small space, leading to a series of 145 very narrow streets, which ran parallel to each other and were called rows. Charles Dickens noted, A row is a long narrow lane or alley, quite straight, 
or nearly as maybe, with houses on either side, both of which you can sometimes touch at once with the fingertips of each hand by stretching out your arms to their full extent. One such row is Kitty Witch's Row, which ran from King Street to Middlegate Street and was the narrowest of all at just 27 inches wide in some parts. As street layouts in the town have changed, much of the row has now been demolished and it now ends at Tower Hill. At the eastern end of this row was four and a half feet wide, but at the western end it was barely 30 inches. It was described as a picturesque but gloomy row with many overhanging Tudor houses on the south side, wrote Colin Took in his 1987 book The Rose of Great Yarmouth. The unusual name is attributed to a variety of explanations, some of which are stranger than others. Kitty Witches was a local name for the swimming crabs found in nearby Braden Water, the row being so narrow that it was easier to enter sideways like a crab. A flying beetle, called the Cotchafer, which was known in Norfolk as Kitty Witch, a species of seabird, a female spectre dressed in white, or a derivation of the Dutch word Kitwike meaning a house of bad repute. The Dutch regularly visited Yarmouth in medieval times to attend the Herring Fair, which was held on Michaelmas, September 29, to Martinmas, November 11. In the vocabulary of East Anglia by the Reverend Robert Forby, director of Forby, published five years after his death in 1830, there was a reference to the row having been the home of kitty witches, who were women of ill repute, who would terrorise residents in order to fund their drinking sessions. He wrote that a kitty witch was a woman dressed in a grotesque and frightful manner, otherwise called a kit witch, probably for the sake of a jingle. It was customary, many years ago at Yarmouth, for women of the lowest order to go in troops from house to house to levy contributions at some season of the year and on some pretext, which nobody seems now to recollect, having men's shirts over their own apparel and their faces smeared with blood. These hideous bedlams have long discontinued their preambulations, but in memory of them, one of the many rows in that town is called Kitty Witch Row. A far less salacious explanation is that the row was named after a former resident, Christopher Witch, who was possibly a baker. I was wondering where the name Kitty Witches came from. I'm still none the wiser, but have lots of alternatives. Lost in the mists of time, I suspect. Another weird tale from Andy later on, but more news now with Desney. Phenomenal success of Airstream trailer could revive Shuttered Pub. The owners of a popular American-style burger restaurant have hailed the phenomenal success of its vintage trailer outside a derelict pub. Oliver Hurram, joint owner of the Yankee Traveller restaurant in King Street, Great Yarmouth, 
said even they were still surprised at the response. All summer, a silver airstream has sat outside the first and last pub in Ormsby, surrounded by twinkling lights and picnic tables. It has now been taken away, but the move has fueled speculation that the restaurant is looking to take over the empty pub site, which has planning permission to be converted into homes. Mr Huron said the idea of the airstream had been to test demand in the northern parishes after the restaurant's takeaway service took off during lockdown. Now the plan was to do the same in the southern end of the borough, looking towards Galston and Bradwell. In the meantime, they were still digesting Ormsby's success, which could have a bearing on what happened to the old pub. The idea of the airstream was to try different sites to see how successful it was, he said. Ormsby was outstanding. The response and the trade was overwhelming. From that perspective, we now decide what to do with the first and last premises. We're now looking to take the airstream to the other side of the river, maybe Galston and Bradwell. There was always a possibility the pub could revert to restaurant use, he said, adding that the proposition was even stronger given the phenomenal feedback. He said he was open to suggestions as to where the trailer could be based and hoped to see the vintage trailer popping up in a new location soon. The Yankee Traveller has been a favourite eatery for generations in the town. Its menu, serving up a tried and tested formula based on burgers, fries and being full up, Fans were devastated when it shut suddenly over Christmas in 2018. It was reopened by entrepreneurs Oliver Huron and Charles Thurston, saving the restaurant, one of the town's go-to venues for birthdays and celebrations. Two village surgeries closed after staff catch coronavirus. Two coastal doctors' surgeries have been forced to close after staff members tested positive for coronavirus. A deep clean is underway at Ormsby and North Caister surgeries, with patients being told they will have to attend appointments at one of the nearby village surgeries instead. A statement posted on the Coastal Partnership's website said, Our surgeries at Ormsby and North Caister are currently closed. If you need an appointment or prescription, please contact us in the usual way. The practice teams will make arrangements for you with one of our nearby partner surgeries, Hemsby or Martham, which are open as normal. We are sorry for the inconvenience this may cause. The statement adds, the surgeries are closed because a small number of staff have tested positive for COVID-19. The practice has measures in place to help prevent the spread of COVID-19 and ensure the safety of staff and patients and has been working closely with healthcare partners to make sure all necessary steps have been taken. Our staff are self-isolating and the surgeries are being deep cleaned. Every effort is being made to reopen the surgeries as soon as we can and we appreciate your patience and understanding.
former spray shop set to reopen as personal training studio. A former spray shop in Great Yarmouth is set for a new lease of life as a personal training studio. The empty unit in a retail park on Jones Way in Cobham is set to reopen next month after planners gave the conversion bid the green light. Paul Bryce, who managed NHS physical activity programmes in the area for 10 years, will run the 1,600 square foot fitness facility, which he has named Move PT Studio. Builders are in already getting ready with the refurbishment, he said, adding that he hopes to open the space by the end of November. We will be limiting the number of people who can exercise there at any one point of time. The majority of the time, it'll just be three personal trainers and three clients, he said. There will also be an option for a personal trainer to take a small group of up to four people. Personal training to some people seems a bit expensive, so we'll have that option for about eight hours a week, he said. Mr Bryce said he has recruited a team of self-employed personal trainers including an athlete, a pair of weight management experts and a strength and conditioning coach. For more information, people can visit the studio's website at www.moveptstudio.co.uk. Cat cafe owners hoping to move to bigger premises. A cat cafe where animal lovers can stroke and chat to feline friends, is hoping to expand by moving to a new and bigger home. Darling Darlings opened last year on Howard Street South and according to owner Caroline Graham, the business has been going from strength to strength even during the pandemic with people visiting the place for support. At the heart of the cafe are its four cats, Coconut and Teddy, both trained therapy cats, Stanley, who is almost fully trained, and the most recent arrival, a sphinx named Maverick. Maverick has taken the place by storm, Ms Graham, 37, said. Stanley is almost signed off, and Maverick is also training to be a therapy cat, she added. Interest in the cafe with bookings coming thick and fast, is such that the ultimate goal of the owners, a desire to connect with vulnerable people, such as children with autism or older people with dementia who benefit from contact with animals, would be better served by relocating to a bigger premises, Ms Graham said. Currently, the cafe can accommodate two groups of six people for a 45-minute slot, with the cafe cleaned between bookings. Being a little community hub, people can come and feel safe, especially during these times, Ms Graham said. The lockdown has led to more people contacting the owners on their Facebook page after visiting the cafe, she said. A lot of people have been developing mental health issues. Knowing we're there, they've come to us for support but we're looking at trying to move somewhere else so we can continue with what we're doing. By having somewhere bigger, we can be safe for visitors, she said, 
getting the government grant has been great, but the money is dwindling. It would be nice to find somewhere a bit bigger to provide for more people. The cafe reopened after lockdown on July the 4th and is now open Wednesday to Saturday from 10am to 3pm. We want something big enough but not too big in the borough in a good area for parking with toilet and kitchen facilities, Ms Graham said. New £10,000 fence and viewing corridor to protect seals along 1.2 kilometre stretch at Winterton. New permanent fencing will protect seals ahead of pupping season on a Norfolk beach. Last year, wardens faced a hellish job keeping people away from pups dotted over the sands at Winterton. The colony at Horsey has long been a draw, but as numbers have expanded, it has moved south to Winterton, where they have been hard to warden. Peter Ansell, chair and founder of the Friends of Halsey Seals, said the fence would cost around £10,000 and he expected the new fourth barrier to go up next week. It comprises a chestnut paling fence on the seaward side with a rope fence on the other, creating a viewing corridor for walkers with a COVID-safe one-way system. Of the 2,316 pups born last year, some 400 were at Winterton, amounting to thousands of animals on the beach when mothers and bulls were counted. Mr Ansell said in the event of a tidal surge, some of the fencing would be taken away to provide escape routes for seals. The fencing is being put up and paid for by Natural England. He said, we need to protect the seals and public because for the last three years there were people, children and seals all over the place, all mixing in with each other and it was a hellish job. He urged anyone going on the beach at Winterton to head south to Hemsby during the breeding season, which starts at the end of this month. Temporary signage will be in place directing people to the viewing corridor. Information maps will be produced that can be downloaded for visitors to see the recommended routes. Emma Punchard, spokesperson for Winterton on Sea Parish Council, said... We hope this fence goes a long way to help protect these beautiful mammals and helps ensure that visitors and villagers can enjoy them from a safe distance whilst helping to protect the dunes and the nationally significant nature reserve. Meanwhile, William Glover from Bramerton has shared his disgust over moronic behaviour he witnessed at the colony on Saturday, October the 10th. He said, I visited Horsey this weekend and I am appalled by the moronic behaviour of some members of the general public. Children chasing some of the seals into the water and people with dogs standing within a few metres of the seals. Social distancing for seals obviously doesn't seem to apply. What do the new coronavirus alert systems mean for people who are shielding? 
People who were advised to shield during the peak coronavirus lockdown have been given new government guidance. The new advice has been issued to more than 2 million people across England after Prime Minister Boris Johnson unveiled the three-tier alert system in an attempt to slow the spread of the virus. The government said none of the alert levels, medium, high and very high, which come into force tomorrow, would automatically trigger a warning for those who shielded before to shield again and stay home at all times. Norfolk and Waveney is classed as the medium category, meaning everyone has to continue following the rule of six and pubs and restaurants have to close at 10pm. The government has said that people in medium risk areas who previously shielded should strictly observe social distancing, meet others outside where possible, limit unnecessary journeys on public transport and work from home where possible. People can still go to work and children should still attend school. Freelance journalist Laura James from Reefham, who shielded during the first wave of the virus, said she is worried about her safety and the rise in infections. She added there were many different groups of people who had to shield in March and believed a one-size-fits-all approach would not work. Mrs James said the government should provide a furlough-style payment scheme for people who needed to shield but could not work from home. Sue Lawrence, 72, from Newark Close in Thorpe St Andrew, who shielded from March until July due to her having Huntington's disease, said, I think people should still be shielding. I'm always wearing a mask and I'm a bit unhappy about going on the buses. I will be as careful as I can. It is such a shame that this is going on, but you have to go with it. Dr Jenny Harris, Deputy Chief Medical Officer for England, said, Over the last few weeks, we've seen a sharp increase in the prevalence of the virus across the country. And we know those who are clinically extremely vulnerable are looking for practical advice on how they can carry on their lives while the virus remains in our communities. This new system will provide clarity on how best those in this group can keep themselves as safe as possible, depending on the rates of transmission in their local area. Whilst advisory, I would urge all those affected to follow the guidance wherever they can and to continue to access health services for their medical conditions. We will continue to monitor the evidence closely and fine-tune this approach to make sure everyone in this group is clear about the safest way to go about their daily lives, particularly over the coming winter months. Time for Desney to take a deep breath as she's back straight away with her roundup of what's on. Well, here we are again having a look at some of the radio and television programmes that you might enjoy this coming week. Of course, we know that 
different eyesight problems affect the kinds of programmes that people can enjoy and that's why I'm trying to cover a varied selection. These are a few of the programmes that the TV magazines are highlighting this week. On Saturday, the big highlight, of course, is the return of Strictly Come Dancing. That's the launch show, and it's where we find out who's been paired up with whom, and where it often turns out that the professional dancers these days are sometimes far more familiar to us than the so-called celebrities. But don't worry, because in a couple of weeks or so, they'll all seem like old friends if you're a real fan of the show. So Little Mix have been having a programme on uh, at the weekend, looking for a band to support them on their next tour. Covid has got in the way of that. They've had to put it off from this year to next. Hopefully it won't get in the way anymore, but it has got in the way with these programmes because unfortunately, one or two members of the production team for that programme have tested positive this week for Covid-19 and it doesn't look as if it'll go ahead this Saturday. So the whole thing will be delayed a week. However, you have Strictly to look forward to. On the other side, on ITV on Saturday, there's a new uh, session of the Million Pound Cube Celebrity. Yes, their money has gone up to a million pounds now. This on Saturday is a special edition with celebrities, as I say. They've changed the rules somewhat, I think. I think there are teams now against each other, not just one poor soul having to do all the task, but teams of two. Some of the games are still for one, some are for two, and they are competing, these two celebrity teams. One of them, I know, is Jason Manford and his brother Stephen. Uh, they're against another team with Mo Gilligan, who is a comedian, and uh, I cannot remember the name of the actor they said was going to partner him. I did see something about it on the one show this week. However, the rest of the week, from Monday to Friday, 9 till 10, the members of the public will be able to have a go. The Million Pound Cube Celebrity, I think, is on again next weekend. Of course, I haven't got the TV magazine to be able to look in that and make sure. But it does say that the one tomorrow, the celebrity one starting off the whole series, is the first of two. So, I and Philip Schofield, again on the one show, was talking about this programme. And I believe that's on the second Saturday, will be the second celebrity show so one at each end of the week and every night next week from monday to friday members of the public are going to be the contestants now let's look at sunday on sunday on bbc one there's that wonderful program that we all love called the antiques roadshow where we all wonder whether that old thing that somebody gave us once is now worth a fortune Probably won't be, but stranger things have happened and this show proves it now and again. Then on the BBC, another of their star programmes, a new programme, a new thriller in which Hugh Laurie plays an MP who is prepared to do anything to get to the top. And this series is called Roadkill. It's a four-parter, presumably every Sunday night for the next four weeks. And he is apparently celebrating winning a newspaper libel case when he gets a call from Downing Street, where the PM reveals that she's looking to promote him to an office of state. 
Well, then he's brought back down to earth when his special advisor reveals that there is an inmate in a woman's prison who claims to have knowledge about his past that could affect his future. Well, Channel 4, on a much lighter note, at 7 o'clock. If you've never seen The Greatest Showman and you like musical films, well, where have you been? This has been out since 2017, so in the scheme of things, it's a fairly new film. And it stars Hugh Jackman as P.T. Barnum. On Monday, David Walliams is the latest person to appear in Who Do You Think You Are? which delves into his ancestry and he discovers a relative's traumatic experience during World War One. If you like radio and you like your sport, you've got two football matches to look forward to this week if you're a Norwich supporter. On Saturday, there's a three o'clock kick-off for Norwich away to Rotherham. And Chris Gorham and Rob Butler will be there to tell you, as usual, all about what's going on and uh, for the phone-in afterwards. But not just once, twice next week, Tuesday at 7.45 kick-off, Norwich play at home to Birmingham. So there Chris Gorham and Rob Butler will be with you again on those two nights. Or maybe Chris Gorham will get the night off since he does the early morning show as well. And they might put Phil Daly in. However, there are two matches for you to listen to. So there you are. Some radio and some TV. See what you think of it. Disney has a piece from Keith Skipper shortly. But first, Andy's back with more strange goings on. Hello, this is Andy with another In the Weird Norfolk series of stories. And this relates to St Encumber at St Mary's Church, Worstead. She is the patron saint of women who wish to be freed from abusive husbands. A woman whose commitment to avoiding her marriage to a pagan king saw her grow a beard overnight in order to repel him from the union. Legend has it that Saint Uncumber, a Christian living in medieval times, was one of nine daughters of a pagan king in Portugal who had taken a vow of chastity, meaning she was horrified to learn that her father had betrothed her to the king of Sicily in a bid to strengthen his own position. The teenager prayed fervently to the god she had vowed to serve in order to be made repulsive to her fiancé, and her saviour answered, she awoke with a full beard. Her fiancé accordingly called off the marriage and her virginity remained intact. It was, however, a hollow victory. Her father, furious that she had disobeyed his will, ordered her to be crucified. One of the many virgin martyrs, Saint Uncumber, is also known as Vilgafortis, thought to be derived from the old Latin Virgo Fortis, meaning strong virgin. Antcomba, Dutch for escaper. Liberata, Italian for liberated. Liberara, Spanish for liberated. And Debaras, French meaning riddance. 
she became the saint to whom the devout appealed to in prayer if they were suffering tribulations. In particular, if they were women who wished to be freed, disencumbered from their cruel husbands. Adopted by the gay community as a heroine and a kindred spirit who did not engage in heterosexual activity, Saint Encumbra is regularly pictured as a bearded woman on a crucifix in Latin America and Europe, but images of her in Britain are rare. There is, however, one to be spotted in a beautiful Norfolk church which is famous in strange circles for an entirely different lady on the chancel rood screen which was donated by John and Alice Alberster in 1512. The screen at St Mary the Virgin in Worstead was repainted in Victorian times, but two figures on the right appear to be untouched or refurbished. Those of St William of Norwich, another believed to be St Uncumber or Vilgefortis, a crowned princess bound to a cross with ropes across her hands and feet. Badly damaged by iconoclasts of the English Reformation, the image is one of very few of this most unusual, but presumably often called upon, saint. Historians have argued that the legend of Uncumber arose from an 18th century Eastern style representations of Jesus on the cross, in which he is depicted wearing a full length tunic rather than the loincloth we see today, with a full beard. They believe that when these images were copied and moved across Europe by pilgrims, the unfamiliar sight of what looked like a man in a dress led to the creation of a story to explain why a female martyr might have been shown with a beard. Her story resonated with people and remained popular on the continent until the late 16th century. A wonderful carving of St Uncumber can also be seen in Westminster Abbey, where she is shown with both a flowing dress and beard. In Europe, she is commonly shown with a small fiddler at her feet and with only one shoe. A nod to the attached legend, which claims one of her silver shoes dropped spontaneously at the feet of a poor minstrel as he serenaded her statue. Well, I remember the bearded lady at the fair, but that tale certainly takes the biscuit and probably the communion wine as well. One of our most renowned storytellers in Norfolk is Keith Skipper. Desney reads his piece on his time with the EDP, which this year celebrates its 150th birthday. It may have come to your attention that our local daily paper, the Eastern Daily Press, lovingly known as the EDP, is 150 years old this year. Some of its hoped-for celebrations, of course, have been affected by the pandemic. But there have been lots of articles in the paper. And this one is a nostalgic look at the EDP by Keith Skipper. He looks back on his relationship with the paper over the years. I got down to developing a serious relationship with the Eastern Daily Press well before I started village school in the late 1940s. 
It was just a case of nipping next door to give Mum a break. I was number five out of ten of the Skipper production line and trying hard not to annoy Florrie Ketteringham quite as much. Her welcoming smile and newspaper sheets on a brick kitchen floor were strong, calming influences as I nudged myself gently across the surface and inspected old copies of the EDP pictures of giant horses glowing and other camera-friendly farm creatures sent a joyful shiver through my increasingly uplifting visits. We had the Daily Mirror in our cottage with the Deerham and Fakenham Times a Friday bonus. Elder sisters took the school friend magazine. Elder brothers occasionally came home with a Beano or Dandy. However, it was Florrie's crumpled pages destined to provide my call-up papers to the wonderful world of newsprint. A few years later, when I could read as well as appreciate good photographs, I landed the job of calling on Mum's Aunt Carrie because, as so delicately put, she needed someone to talk at while doing her cleaning and baking. She took the EDP and requested interesting snippets to be presented aloud in between spells of her holding court about everyone and everything on her rambling compass. I waited for the next tasty sausage roll or shortcake straight from the old wall oven. I cultivated a useful network of contacts and friends on regular errand rounds, offering an even wider choice of free reading material. Classroom chums came up with Eagle, Roy of the Rovers, Film Fun and a posse of cowboy treats. Harry Dawson shared his Methodist recorder, while Mildred Simmons added an ecumenical streak with her Christian Herald. Aubrey and George King allowed me to pore over their Farmers Weekly and Radio Times when I went for Friday tea at High House Farm where my oldest sister worked. Elsewhere, Mrs Mann passed on her son's copies of boxing magazine, The Ring. The elderly Lloyds, near Waterend Farm, invited me to select from a pile of alluring picture posts stacked near their front door. Plenty of chances as well to keep a constant eye on the EDP, especially for football news about the Canaries and the latest Boy John letter written to the paper in glorious Norfolk dialect by Broadland garage proprietor and comedian Sidney Grapes. Those entertaining epistles, 1947 to 1958, served me admirably during early Hammond's grammar school days in Swaffham as I organised impromptu renditions and translations in the reading room for foreign pupils ready to offer cigarettes, wagon wheels or homework help in return. You can thank, or blame, Eric Fowler for inspiring me to haunt the mean streets of Norfolk as a fearless news reporter on leaving school in 1962. His talk to our sixth form troops a few months before prompted a letter to the Norfolk News Company seeking first steps along that creative trail. Eric went on parade for 35 years under the delightfully parochial pen name of Jonathan Mardle to delight a wide, 
and devoted EDP readership for his Wednesday morning essays. His columns remain one of the most distinguished expressions of English regional journalism. He was also a highly regarded leader writer for the EDP, spicing many a dull but important topic with a memorably crisp turn of phrase. Nor was he above consulting much younger colleagues around the office. I recall a series of late evening chats in the 1970s as we attempted to put Carrow Road antics into reasonable perspective. A daunting role model as I spent 17 years working full-time on the EDP and associated papers in Thetford, Deerham, Yarmouth and Norwich. They told me so often I'd be carried out in a box, it seemed downright impertinent to walk away on a warm June day in 1979. I'd gone stale, lost faith in a new regime at the top and felt a spell of glorious uncertainty could do me good. Fresh challenges came along before I resumed regular links as an EDP columnist in the mid-1980s. I continue to relish a wonderful platform, soaked in unflinching Norfolk beliefs and values. If Jonathan Mardle was a catalyst for such diring ambitions, it was a good one. Gal Next Door, who got me going, Florrie Ketteringham's EDP floor show, has proved a class act. OK, time for the last part of this week's news. Bid to replace failed care home with 16 houses. A care home that closed after a damning inspector's report could be demolished and replaced with 16 houses. The proposal would see the facility once known as the Lodge and previously Abbeville Lodge on Acle New Road in Great Yarmouth, redeveloped with residential terraced properties. The site is located to the north of the A149 Acle New Road. Draft plans submitted by applicant Mark Wakeley with an address in Essex show 16 three-storey houses with garages on the ground floor. These would include three blocks of terraced houses with gardens and driveways leading onto School Road back as well as a pair of semi-detached townhouses on the southern part of the site accessed from the lane to the rear of Bridge Road. A decision on the bid is expected by Christmas Eve this year. The care home was closed in May 2019 after a Care Quality Commission CQC inspection found it to be inadequate in all areas. A stretch of Galston High Street to close for two weeks. Flood defence work will close a stretch of High Street on the coast for two weeks. Anglian Water is starting trial hole investigations on Galston High Street on October the 26th as it determines the best way to end the flood risk in the area, continuing work that began over the summer at other locations in the town. This project is expected to last until November the 6th. An Anglian Water spokesperson said, After recently completing our initial trial hole investigations to help design a vital scheme of work to alleviate the local sewer flooding, our teams are shortly due to undertake an additional trial hole on the High Street in Galston 
between Garnham Road and Trafalgar Road East. Deeper investigations are required on the High Street to ensure that we design the scheme with the best route and options available to us in order to reduce the disruption wherever we possibly can. In order to keep our teams and local road users safe, a road closure will be in place for two weeks on the High Street starting from October the 26th. A full diversion route will be in place and access for residents within the closure will be maintained at all times. We apologise for any inconvenience this may cause and we'd like to thank local residents for their patience while we complete this essential work to reduce the likelihood and frequency of flooding events. Anglian Water has said its teams will be following Public Health England advice on social distancing while at work and will be limiting direct contact with customers unless it's an emergency. First bus driver in hospital with coronavirus. A first bus driver is in hospital suffering from coronavirus. The driver, based at the Great Yarmouth Depot, is being treated at the James Paget University Hospital in Galston, one of 13 patients on the wards with the virus. Alvin Parker, operations manager at First Great Yarmouth, said, We have one employee who is in hospital presently being treated for COVID-19. And over the last four weeks, we have had two others who have taken tests due to family members contracting the virus, but returned negative results. We have no evidence that these events have occurred through workplace transmission. We have strict safety measures in place on our buses and at our bus depot with social distancing and reduced capacities in place. Regularly deep cleans with handrails, windowsills, bell pushes and other surfaces wiped and sanitised to help keep our customers and drivers safe. Our bus depots have sanitising stations located around the site, face covering compliance and one-way systems to reduce face-to-face -face contact. I am confident that with all the measures we have in place, we are managing to help keep the numbers of positive COVID cases down to a minimum, both within our business and in the town. Worst case scenario could mean 12,500 coronavirus cases in Norfolk at the next peak, health experts warn. A worst case scenario could see a peak of 12,500 coronavirus infections in Norfolk at some point in the months ahead, with hundreds of people having to be treated in hospital, health experts have said. However, they stress the figures are at the extreme end of modelling, with the county having seen a peak of between 5,200 and 6,500 infections during the first wave in April. But in an effort to ease pressure on Norfolk's hospitals, people could be asked to book slots if they need to attend A&E departments. Dr Penelope Toff, a locum public health consultant working with Norfolk County Council, said there had been 3,841 cases in Norfolk up to October the 6th and cases had been rising again since the end of August. 
She told a virtual meeting of Norfolk's Health and Wellbeing Board how Norfolk's infection rates were lower than England as a whole and the East of England rate, but they were increasing. But, she said, looking forward, we have applied some modelling to the Academy of Medical Sciences predictions. When I say predictions, these are scenarios, not forecasts or anything like that, but reasonable worst-case scenarios. At the extreme end of that, we might be looking at a peak week within the next few months of 12,500 infected. I think those would be rolling seven days averages and we could expect about 4-5% to of those hospitalised. Dr Stoff stressed Norfolk had a robust outbreak control plan. She said, we do recognise where the potential hotspots are. It's being managed very well at the moment and if we continue to manage it well in a continued strategy to the place and the wider community. People from areas with high infection rates are asked to stay away from Norfolk for now. Tourists from parts of the country with higher levels of coronavirus are being asked not to travel to East Anglia during the half-term holiday. It comes as one of the region's MPs calls on the government to tighten its latest restrictions to ban people from worst affected areas from overnight stays in parts of the country with lower infection rates. The autumn break, which begins in 10 days' time, will be one of the last chances in 2020 for attractions hit by lockdown to make up money lost earlier in the year. But the boss of Visit East of England, which promotes tourism across Norfolk, Suffolk, Cambridgeshire and Essex, said those thinking of travelling from areas with high infection levels should stay away. Pete Waters, the group's executive director, said we would discourage people from travelling from locked-down areas. If they could refrain from coming, that would be appreciated. We'll still be here next year. They need to think about the people who live here. Visit East of England is set to launch a campaign promoting unexplored England, aimed at attracting visitors over the autumn and winter. It is set to target areas of the home counties north of London, where infection rates are currently low. An area south of a line drawn from Kings Lynn to Bristol remains at so-called medium risk, the lowest category of the new three-tier system, which now determines the level of restrictions. It includes the whole of Norfolk. Elsewhere, vast swathes of Northern England and the Midlands are in Tier 2, the high-risk bracket, where people are being asked to observe a ban on household mixing indoors and overnight stays. Those in Tier 3, classed as at very high risk, are also being asked to avoid non-essential travel. Asked being the operative word. For while more than 30% of the population now fall into the two higher risk categories, it is not illegal for them to travel to lower risk areas on holiday. North Norfolk MP Duncan Baker said, The guidance that we have is that people are advised against overnight stays, but in my view it needs to go further. If we make things advisory, 
I have real concern over whether they will be adhered to. I'm calling on the government to go further and rather than make it advisory, say you are prohibited from going to other areas from your higher infection rate area. Sarah Butikova, leader of North Norfolk Council, said, I would respectfully ask people, if they are in areas with high infection rates, to think seriously before they travel. It's a really difficult one because we obviously need visitors, but at the same time, if we have visitors from the wrong areas, we will end up with a high infection rate. An informal poll carried out by the EDP's Facebook page, the majority of those responding agreed with tighter restrictions. Sheer thoughtlessness. Three people punished for dog fouling and fly tipping. I apologise in advance if I mispronounce a rather East European looking name that is further down the page. Three people have been fined a total of more than £1,300 for dog fouling and fly tipping offences. The cases brought by Great Yarmouth Borough Council's Environmental Services Department were heard at the town's Magistrates Court on Tuesday, September the 29th. Sandra Geisau-Kali of Havelock Road was caught on CCTV failing to pick up after her dog had fouled at the corner of Havelock Road and Alma Road on January the 2nd this year. She was captured again on CCTV the following day, this time littering by picking up her dog's mess and putting it in a green recycling wheelie bin near her home address. The magistrates found her guilty of both offences in her absence and ordered her to pay £200 for dog fouling and £300 for littering, as well as £350 costs and a £50 victim surcharge. Jill Law, 48, of Nelson Road South, was also found guilty in her absence of an offence of dog fouling after an environmental ranger saw her failing to clear up after her dog at St Nicholas Recreation Ground on January the 22nd. She was ordered to pay a £400 fine, £100 costs, plus a £40 victim surcharge. David Kemp, 50, of Kings Road, Galston, pleaded guilty to fly-tipping on December the 5th last year, when he dumped approximately five black bags of waste at Malthouse Lane in Galston, behind the old registry office. Evidence recovered from the waste allowed the council to trace him. Mr Kemp was ordered to pay a £480 fine, £250 costs and a £48 victim surcharge. Penny Carpenter, chairman of the Borough Council's Environmental Committee, said, As a society, we witness the sheer thoughtlessness carried out by others who have very little consideration for the majority. Our team are, quite rightly, recognised as a proactive unit and we fully support them in their duties and welcome the court's decision in these cases. Flu jabs for 50 to 64 year olds should be available in Norfolk from next month. A group of people who have been told they are eligible for NHS flu jabs 
will have to wait another month to get them, health bosses have said. It comes amid concerns Norfolk people aged 50 to 64 have not been able to get the free jabs despite the government saying for the first time they are eligible. Health bosses in Norfolk said they have had to prioritise their vaccine stock to those historically have been entitled to them, those in the 65 plus category and those with underlying health conditions. And at a meeting of the Norfolk and Waveney Health Wellbeing Board meeting this week, concerns were raised over the uncertainty for people in the 50 to 64 years group who have been told the vaccine was not available. South Norfolk councillor Yvonne Bendel said, I am aware, as a councillor, that some people seem to have difficulty accessing flu jabs. It seems to be quite accessible for the vulnerable part of the population. But for the most general part of the population asking for flu jabs, I've been hearing they've been told there isn't anything available. Melanie Craig, Chief Officer for Norfolk and Waveney Clinical Commissioning Group, CCG, said we are prioritising vulnerable groups as the first cohort to be vaccinated. Vulnerable groups and the over 65s. That's the usual cohort who are prioritised. The government announced an additional cohort, which is the 50 to 64s this year. There is vaccine supply, which is held at the Department of Health and Social Care, which will be released in November. That cohort is deemed to be of lower clinical priority compared to those who are vulnerable groups and the over 65s. And so supplies will be released to general practice in November. We've been trying to communicate with the public to ask people not to come forward until they are called. Mr Anoop Desi, chairman of Norfolk and Waveney CCG, said The way flu jabs have been delivered this year has been different. Because of the constraints of distancing and wearing protective equipment, practices have had to adapt. So a number of practices have had drive-in services and there has been a lot of organisation and planning around that, which has had an impact on how patients access their flu jabs. Well, that's all we have for you for this edition of Grapevine. Grapevine, volume 40, number 42, is copyright 2020 of the Great Yarmouthan District Talking Newspaper Association. The content in the main is adapted from the publications of Archant Limited and is used with their consent. However, the Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association accepts responsibility for editorial decisions made for this recording. Margaret is next week's newsreader, having swapped weeks with Andrew, and so please join us online for that. In the meantime, from Desney, Andy and myself, it's bye for now. Have a great week, and of course, keep well and safe. Bye.